Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 61, Super Trooper, in which we talk about a 1950s chemical argument about organic carbon cations and how George Ola used extremely powerful superacids to solve the controversy. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Supporters of this podcast can download a supplemental sheet showing diagrams of some of the molecules I mention in this episode. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. A bugaboo in organic chemistry that had persisted from the 1890s onward to the middle of the 20th century was how certain reaction mechanisms operated. Did they contain a carbocation, that is, a positively charged carbon, in an intermediate structure on the way to a final product? We will look at this question a hot topic in organic chemistry in the 1950s, in this episode. A chemist named G. Merling reported in 1891 that he added bromine to an organic seven-membered ring with three double bonds called cycloheptatriene, and the result was an uncharacterized organic bromine salt, C7H7Br, soluble in water. Not until 1954 did Americans William von Eggers-During and Lawrence H. Knox figure out the structure of this product, which was cycloheptatrenilium bromide, an organic ring of seven, not six, carbons, each of which has a hydrogen sticking off as a cation plus a bromide anion. As a side note, both During and Knox have interesting biographies. During published his first article in 1939 and his last in 2008, so he is one of the rare scientists to have published in eight different decades. Knox was one of the first black Americans to get his Ph.D. in chemistry, the work of which was done at Harvard University. He also got a job in the early 1960s with the Mexican hormone company Syntex, which we mentioned in episode 56, and he became a successful steroid chemist. Sadly, Knox was killed by carbon monoxide poisoning from a faulty kerosene heater in 1966. Other unusual organic cations were soon found. In 1901, two chemists, American James F. Norris and F. Kerman, independently found that triphenylmethyl alcohol, which is colorless, was then dissolved in concentrated sulfuric acid and gave an intense yellow solution. Triphenylmethanol has a similar structure to the triphenylmethyl radical we talked about, which Moses Gomberg discovered, but the methanol has an OH group attached to the middle carbon, making today's compound an alcohol. So the product that Norris and Kerman both found was sort of a triphenylmethyl group with a positive charge on the central carbon, combined with a hydrogen sulfate anion making a salt. 
There were similar reactions that occurred if you put triphenylmethyl chloride with aluminum chloride and also with tin chloride, making orange complexes. The American chemist Julius Stieglitz in 1899 suggested that these products come about because, during the reaction, a positively charged organic group is briefly formed on the way to the products. By the way, if you are into the arts, specifically photography, you may recognize the surname Stieglitz. His older brother was the photographer Alfred Stieglitz. Adolf von Bayer, whom we encountered quite a while ago, was the chemist who realized in 1902 that these triphenylmethyl compounds were organic salts. There is another organic salt of a similar structure to the triphenylmethyl salts, which is familiar to you if you are an artist or art historian, malachite green. Malachite green is not related to the mineral malachite. The name is because it is similar in color to malachite. So, von Bayer called this property of organic salts having brilliant colors halochromy, from Greek salt plus color. The first real reaction mechanism for this kind of reaction as we know it came about in the 1920s when such mechanisms were beginning to be explored in the modern sense. The real carbocation idea crystallized with German Hans Meerwein and Konrad von Emster at that time, who had been studying rearrangements of terpene and steroid molecules for eight years. The carbocation idea remained controversial for decades, however. Christopher Ingold invoked this carbocation scheme to explain the Walden inversion when a reactant approaches a molecule, creates a short-lived intermediate, which is unstable and pushes out a bit of the molecule on the other side, inverting the main structure. Ingold suggested maybe a partial positive charge on a carbon would help explain what was going on. Many of the molecules in which the carbocation intermediate was suggested had small rings and bridges of carbon atoms. The Canadian chemist Saul Winstein argued in the 1950s for carbocations passionately and called them bridged ions. But many organic chemists remained skeptical of this idea through World War II and beyond. The prestigious chemical journal, the Journal of the American Chemical Society, would not even publish any article describing carbocations for a while because the idea was so fraught. American chemist John Roberts thought the idea was so weird he dubbed them non-classical ions, which has stayed in chemists' vocabulary to this day. American Herbert Brown also was offended by the idea of carbocations particularly weird bridges across molecules. He instead offered a tautomerism as an alternative mechanism. One of the reactions Winstein used as an example of carbocations was the addition of a halogen, chlorine, bromine, iodine, for example, diatomic molecule to a double-bonded pair of carbon atoms. If the halogen molecule just moved up against the double bond, you'd expect that the halogen atoms would attach to the two carbons on the same side of the double bond. But no, 
The result is that the two halogens attach on opposite sides of the double bond. Winstein offered the mechanism that one, an electron pair from the carbon-carbon double bond shifts to one of the carbons. This makes the other carbon positive, a carbocation. Two, the diatomic halogen breaks apart so that one halogen atom attaches to the non-carbocation carbon. Leaving a free halogen anion. Three, the halogen anion attaches to the carbocation. The argument went back and forth throughout the 1950s. John Roberts said in 1990 about the debate that it quote, ranks among the classics of chemical disagreements. It was fought out nationally and international. Through seminars, meetings, referees' reports, papers, books, and private communications, Doring and colleagues came up with a stable carbocation, heptamethylbenzenium, in solution by 1958, and did this new technique of nuclear magnetic resonance (NMR) to determine its structure. It's a six-carbon ring-like benzene where every carbon has a methyl group hanging off. Except one carbon has two methyl groups attached. The whole thing has a single positive charge and is stabilized because the electrons are smeared out over the whole cation. In 1960, another relatively stable carbocation was found by Paul Story and Martin Saunders, the seven norbornadienyl cation, whose structure was also confirmed by NMR. It's a bridged molecule. With all sorts of partial bonding between most of the carbons, resistance to carbocations began to crack. We now turn to the namesake for this episode: superacids. The topic is generally ignored in high school and freshman chemistry classes. And I never encountered it, even in any undergraduate courses. From the name itself, you can easily guess that a superacid is a powerful acid. In fact, superacids are more acidic than even the strongest mineral acids, such as concentrated sulfuric acid. The name for these acids was coined by Americans Norris Hall and James Conant in 1927. Conant, by the way, became the first American ambassador to West Germany in the 1950s. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Conant, in his 1927 paper, said, "Quote." Many substances which show no basic properties in water will nevertheless form salts. In this and the following paper, we investigate certain of the properties of these solutions in which salt formation is exceptionally complete, 
and we propose to call such solutions superacid solutions. Unquote. A superacid goes beyond the Brunsted-Lowry definition of an acid. In Brunsted-Lowry acid-base theory, an acid donates a hydrogen cation H+. It is likely the definition of an acid you first learned in a fundamental chemistry class. Sorensen, as we learned, invented the pH scale to describe these sorts of acids and give a quantitative ranking to the strength of these sorts of acids. The pH scale typically ranges from 0 to 14 because the dissociation constant of water, H2O, into H plus and OH minus is 10 to the minus 14. Superacids have a pH value even lower than 0, which doesn't really work in Sorensen's scheme. The pH scale isn't adequate here. Let's also be clear about what strength means. In acid-base systems, an acid's strength is not its concentration, how many acid molecules in a given volume, but how much it dissociates, breaks apart, into acid-forming groups. Water is a weak acid because only one in 10 million molecules breaks apart, making hydrogen ions. Acetic acid, the active part of vinegar, is a bit stronger, with about 2 in every 100,000 molecules making hydrogen ions. Hydrofluoric acid is still a bit stronger in water, with 7 in 10,000 molecules breaking up to create H plus ions, but this acid reacts with glass. Oxalic acid, found in rhubarb, is stronger, with about 6 in every 100 molecules making H+. A strong acid is essentially all dissociated into acid groups. This includes nitric, sulfuric, and hydrochloric acids, the mineral acids discovered by the medieval Arab alchemists. These are all acids in water, though. We can talk about acids without dealing with water-based dissociation because suppose the water in the solution isn't strong enough to pull the hydrogen ion off the acid molecule. Take pure sulfuric acid, H2SO4, for example, at the extreme acid end of the pH scale at pH 0. Sulfuric acid dissociates into H plus and HSO4 minus. This is a different dissociation, and we cannot use pH. There is no water here, just acid. So water's dissociation constant doesn't apply. In 1932, American chemist Lewis Hammett invented a new acidity scale, now called the Hammett acidity function, to deal with non-aqueous acids and superacids. On his scale, sulfuric acid, the standard, has a value of minus 12. It's the equivalent of the acidity of a hydrogen ion at a super-high non-real concentration. One superacid is trifluoromethane sulfonic acid, first synthesized in 1954 by British chemists Robert Hazeldine and J.M. Kidd, and is around 1,000 times stronger than sulfuric acid. Another superacid is fluorosulfuric acid, HSO3F, also about 1,000 times stronger than sulfuric acid. A third superacid is hydrofluoric acid, but not in water, of a similar strength as well. 
After hearing the episode in which I talked about some of fluorine chemistry recently, you shouldn't be surprised to hear that the strongest superacids include fluorine compounds. Which brings us to George Ola, a Hungarian chemist who fled to North America when the Soviets invaded Hungary in 1956. His interest was also in fluorine chemistry. Unfortunately, in his early research years in Hungary, getting basic reagents to do his fluorine research was difficult. His first position after escaping from the Iron Curtain was at Dow Chemical Company in Ontario, Canada. And here we introduce Gilbert Lewis's acid-base theory to discuss superacids. So, a Lewis acid is an electron pair acceptor, and you may have learned this in a university-level chemistry class. Ola was studying reactions using Lewis acids, including boron trifluoride, BF3, and antimony pentafluoride, SBF5. Dow Chemicals used such reactions to make ethyl benzene, which is itself used to make styrene monomer for production of polystyrene plastic. Ola wanted to understand the underlying chemical mechanisms for such reactions. Some chemists thought carbocations were involved, and others were violently opposed to this radical idea. Carbocations had never been observed in any reaction, and so a lot of chemists were skeptical of suggesting that carbocations were involved in reaction mechanisms. Carbocations, if they existed at all, seemed to be extremely unstable. Ola thought that carbocations are unstable because the solvent in which they are generated is a nucleophile. A nucleophile is a nucleus, positive charge-loving molecule or ion, so carbocations would be eaten up and reacted fast in such a solvent, disappearing before anyone could observe them. Therefore, he tried to preserve them in oddball solvents like sulfur dioxide and fluid SO2ClF. These are polar solvents that can dissolve other ions, like carbocations, but don't grab onto positively charged ions. Of course, the carbocation is positive and needs an anion, so Ola added a Lewis acid into his weird solutions to react with the anions. In the technologically advanced West, particularly the USA, Ola could use the latest electronic instruments to analyze his solutions. He used infrared spectroscopy to determine structures in solution. He used nuclear magnetic resonance as well. His breakthrough in carbocations came when he put a tertiary butyl fluoride compound into sulfur dioxide with antimony pentafluoride. The fluoride left the tertiary butyl organic group, creating a tertiary butyl cation, a carbocation alone in solution. Nuclear magnetic resonance confirmed the structure in 1962. Ola then turned to superacids to help stabilize carbocations in solution further. He mixed fluorosulfuric acid, already a Bronsted-Lowry superacid, with antimony pentafluoride, a Lewis acid, so it can accept electron pairs. At a Christmas party in 1966, this frightening mixture was so powerful that it even dissolved a candle, which is made of wax, pure hydrocarbon molecules. 
The acid mixture from then on was called magic acid, a name that has stuck to this day. Once again, Ola's research group did nuclear magnetic resonance to confirm the tertiary butyl cation structure, which came from the splitting of the hydrocarbon molecules into smaller tertiary butyl ions. They found evidence for only one type of hydrogen atom in the solution, pinning down the structure to a tertiary butyl cation in which all the hydrogen atoms are equivalent. Dylan Stiles, a columnist for the Royal Society of Chemistry monthly magazine, Chemistry World, noted in 2007 about superacids that, quote, What makes these acids so magic is that they really, really want to give up a proton. Replacing the proton with an alkyl group produces voraciously active alkylating agents, and methylfluorosulfonate, magic methyl, is strong enough to methylate ethers, nitriles, and just about anything else. The problem is that magic methyl will also methylate human DNA, and it's a volatile liquid. That's a deadly combination, and in the 1970s there was a reported fatality from a chemist who spilled a few drops on his lab coat. For that reason, Derek Lowe, our In the Pipeline columnist, puts magic methyl in the category of things I won't work with. And I have to agree. Unquote. Even storing these superacids in bottles can be a problem. The current favorite is Teflon for such containers. The mounting evidence from the late 1950s through the early 1960s finally convinced most organic chemists that carbocations were real. The last holdout rejecting carbocation theory seemed to be Herbert Brown. The carbocation controversy, however, is much less known than other scientific debates. As Brock notes in his Norton History of Chemistry, quote, Oddly, because of the complexity of the issue, the debate passed by historians and philosophers of science, while within chemistry itself, it was confined to organic chemists. It forms a good example of how appeals to the simplest hypothesis in science, essentially Brown's position, may break down under the combined attack of experimental and theoretical evidence. I decided to check my own collection of organic chemistry textbooks to see when they start mentioning the existence of carbocations. Lialan Clapp's Chemistry of the Covalent Bond from 1957 doesn't have it. Nor does Fieser and Fieser's Introduction to Organic Chemistry also from that year. Otto Benfi's Introduction to Organic Reaction Mechanisms from 1970 does not mention carbocations. The change happens during the early to mid-1970s. Meislich, Nishamkin, and Sharefkin's Organic Chemistry in Schalm's Outline series from 1977 does mention carbocations, and the book I used in college, Pine, Hendrickson, Cram, and Hammond's Organic Chemistry, 4th edition, from 1980, talks about carbocations. We see that it took about a decade from Ola's research to organic chemistry professors being comfortable enough to discuss it with undergraduates. Even though the topic is esoteric for non-experts, I hope that I have given you something of the science and controversy 
to get a taste of how science evolves over time. In our next episode, the space race begins, and we get an overview of early rocket fuels from the 1940s to 1960s. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. Podcast.